0: Hello and welcome to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand.
1: And I'm Brent Helt, Sandman number two, Imperfect Hosts, Uh, publication date of February 1989, art by Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg. lettering by Todd Klein, colorist Robbie Bush. And assistant editor Art Young, Karen Berger again as the editor. This is the second uh, comic of Sandman and the first appearance of
0: several of his names that uh, we will continue to add to as we read through this series. Yeah, we get a a whole list of names here for Dream, which is fantastic. And this is the first kind of regular issue of the, the series. It's a regular length, 24-page issue, but it is packed full of literary allusions, allusions to classical literature and Greek mythology, and also a slew of references and allusions uh, to the DC Comics universe. So uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about in this, uh, in this issue.
1: And there's a lot of groundwork here that I noticed having read the whole series that uh, Neil is setting up a lot of things here that didn't strike me at the time and I don't think would have struck anything. It's just um, there's some nice little seeds that are planted that later bear fruit throughout the series.
0: Yeah, we're going to have a lot of work to do explicating some of these things because it is going to matter, uh, you know, a hundred issues from now or so. So let's uh, let's just jump into it. So this issue opens in the House of Mystery, where Cain and Abel, those famous brothers from the, the biblical book of Genesis, are having an argument about a, a birthday present. And I think before we even get a second sentence uh, into this recap, uh, we should actually pause and uh, talk about the House of Mystery. Like the inclusion of Wesley Dodds as the original Sandman back in issue number one. Uh this too is from the wider DC universe. And Brent, I think uh that you are kind of the the resident comics history expert here. So uh can you tell us more about the House of Mystery?
1: The House of Mystery was kind of the setup for, along with the House of Secrets, uh two different series that DC ran um that were anthology series. So it was uh, A lot of times horror stories, sometimes other things, um, mystery and fantasy as well. And so they were set pieces used for that purpose. It started as a horror anthology in the 50s, but then with the Comics Code Authority, it backed a little bit away from uh, some of the themes. And uh, then it returned to horror a little bit later. Um, It's had a number of notable keepers, including um, a run in which it was Elvira's House of Mystery in the... um, 1980s, uh, 11 issues plus a special, um, which I thought was kind of neat that uh, it wasn't just uh, Kane
0: or Abel who were the keepers. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't I hadn't realized that. I, I guess I thought it was always Kane and and, and we should say, yes, right, that, that Kane and Abel were kind of the like the hosts of the series, the keeper you say, but they were they were kind of like Rod Serling's role in the Twilight Zone, right?
1: Yeah, well in Kane's case a little bit more like uh the Crypt Keeper. But Abel I feel to be kind of a um a very friendly, dumbwitted uh, Rod Serling. <laughs> yeah.
0: I guess that's a compliment of sorts.
1: So we get uh, we we return to Cain and Abel where uh, Cain is giving his brother a present for his birthday um and Abel doesn't want to open it because he's afraid it will explode or otherwise harm him and then there is a knock at the door
0: Right. And we should say that, that this is all taking place in the dreaming, that in, in this incarnation of the House of Mystery, it is located in the kingdom of dream or or dreams realm. We're going to get much more about this later in the issue. And this issue actually starts with an establishing shot of the House of Mystery. We get a real cool exterior shot of it. There's, a, again, a creepy forest. It's, it's all purple in the background there. There's some bats flying uh, and it looks really quite like a haunted house. But then the, the first shot that we have of the interior, I think is just priceless. There's actually like a stuffed moose head on the wall that maybe has some boxer shorts hung on its antler.
1: Yeah. And I wonder, you know, I'm, I'm assuming those are canes because this is his house, but uh, who knows uh, whose they might be. But yeah, it's quite an interesting setup with the um, stereotypical bats coming off of the front of the house. Uh, and you have a bunch of cemetery headstones, none of which are perpendicular to the ground.
0: Yeah, the house is a real great setting for a horror story, clearly. And I think, you know, there's some setup here, even with this knock on the door, because the, the brothers uh, I know to kind of argue a little bit about who's actually going to go open the door. I guess from the the sound of it, they can tell that uh, the knock comes from Gregory, who's a, a large and, and rather cartoonish looking gargoyle, basically uh, a dragon. And Gregory is friendly, but Abel, who's uh, he's been forced to go open the door, is uh, shocked when he opens it uh, because Gregory has brought Dream with him. Uh, the Prince of Stories, he calls him the first of these names. The Prince of Stories is uh, a real cool title.
1: It is, and also it helps frame. I think the reason why the houses of mystery and secrets are in the dreaming is because they are all about stories, and so here we have the Prince of Stories in his domain, Dream. Um. Although the image itself is very funny to me, um, with Gregory having a big, broad smile, kind of like a dragon as or gargoyle as dog, as like friendly, floppy eared dog almost. Although the floppy ears in this case are kind of wings, um, but it just kind of gingerly holding Dream, who looks like he's having none of it at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's basically acting like a like a St. Bernard or some other kind of sheepdog here. And and Dream is not having it, but he is also uh, pretty messed up. right? He's just now returned to his kingdom following his long imprisonment. But he, he doesn't look healthy at all, and he, he only barely manages here to say, help me, please. And you know, we can tell from the way that the, the dialogue is, is written that he's, he's murmuring that that, 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 that these words are barely getting out of his mouth.
1: And Gregory, when he drops him, Dream falls flat on his face and doesn't even move his arms to, to protect himself at all. And I I think that might be, um, even inclusive of the first issue where he is trapped the entire time in a glass globe, that might be some of the weakest that we actually ever see Dream, at least physically. We'll see him defeated in other ways later down the road in the series. However, I think that that, that panel itself might be, on the one hand, it's kind of a cartoonish action lines of him being dropped from Smiling Gregory mouth. On the other hand, it's, it's, uh, it shows the dire s- state that he's in.
0: Yeah, his weakness, right? His lack of strength here is the, the real theme of the, the, the next uh, few pages here. So the, the the brothers, Cain and Abel, have taken Dream in, and, and uh, now he's convalescing in a, a pretty nice four-poster bed here in the House of Mystery. And I want to call attention here to the art, because we see that Dream is lying on a bed that is yellow, and the, the walls of this room are purple. And you know, these are Easter colors, right? And in one of these panels, Dream is splayed out on the bed in a pose that, that really looked to me like Christ on the cross, right, with his his arm kind of outstretched, you know, sort of just... Uh, parallel to the, the ground. So it looked to me like Keith and Dringenberg here might be playing with the, the notion of, of resurrection, right, as as Dream is, is going to be getting his strength back. And this might be something to keep an eye on.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought of that about that, Glenn, but that's a good point. To me, it just looked a lot like with the shadow work that it was the crow uh, before the crow existed, because <laughs> it looked almost as if uh, his floppy hair might actually be additional eye makeup going on. But, uh, but yes, there's a lot of uh, Christ-like imagery going on. and then it uh goes from the yellow sheets to like this green. You know, his memory of wandering through the the wastes outside the dreamland, um and its splashes of rain and, and this kind of alien green color backdrop to him.
0: Yeah, and we learn here that the dream was on his way to his castle, but he just wasn't strong enough to make it all the way into the, the heart of the of the dream and the heart of his realm. And the reason that he is this weak is because the spell that he used to bind Burgess in Eternal Waking and the first issue took the last of his strength. Uh, and that has to be something that he knew before he did that to Burgess. So I think that really underscores something that we talked about in our last episode, which was the extent to which Dream is really being characterized by a, a, almost a, a lust for vengeance here, right? That he's not even making good long-term decisions because he's angry.
1: He's left off at the end of the first issue as we discussed where he is clearly enacting his vengeance but in a way that you expect almost a an omnipotent Uh, creature to be doing so but here we're shown that like no there is very much limits to his power Uh, it somewhat sets up the stakes going forward as to how underpowered he currently is and that his vengeance and his Reacting emotionally to things has consequences, which is another theme that we'll see throughout the series as well.
0: Right, and Dream has to get strong again now, and that—that's really what this issue is going to be about. Is and in fact, really, actually, the the whole first story arc is going to be about Dream kind of reconstituting himself and reconstituting his realm. Uh, Kane actually brings in some food here, and he calls Dream Prince Morpheus. So as we said, we are getting a lot of titles and a lot of names for Dream in this issue, but food is actually not what he he needs. It's not going to help him. What he actually needs to do is devour something that he himself created, right? And that will give him back some of his, his Power, some of like his his essence, I guess, and so he asks the brothers if they they have anything of his, anything that he made, and Cain says no, but he's clearly lying, which is very interesting. But Abel, of course, is is all too ready to help, and it turns out that both of them have uh, letters of commission from Dream, and Dream now releases these letters and reabsorbs like this fragment of himself that he placed inside of them. I guess this is kind of a Horcrux before there were Horcruxes as well.
1: And there's a couple different things. Things going on in this page first, the idea that they have commissions, and so this sets up. I think the idea that later uh, is better explained that Cain and Abel are not of the dreaming; they just currently reside there, and they're currently serving posts for Morpheus, Prince of Stories, Sandman, Dream. But it's not that they're creatures of the Dreaming. A lot of the other creatures we'll encounter in the Dreaming, for the most part, are things that have come from Dreams, either from other uh sleeping folks or that Dream has created himself. But Cain uh, and Abel are from something else. So here we have Neil Gaiman incorporating the Houses of Secrets and Mysteries, but they're not – originally from there. So it's it's incorporating them into the realm without making them retconning them so much to be that they've always been part of the realm. It may be that the houses were other places before. And in DC Comics literature, um, the houses can exist in multiple places simultaneously, including in Vermont, I believe. <laughs> That's thing one. Uh, thing two is the second panel on the page shows what appears to be a picture frame with Abel standing in it, Looking quite, uh, well dressed, um, and much better off than he is elsewhere. But then, uh, Abel steps out of the frame later in uh, in the, um, uh, later on the page withholding his commission. And I think I'm jumping to a conclusion here, but my headcanon is that Abel at this point is, has stepped through the picture frame into his own house to get his commission to bring it back to dream. And that this is the first instance um, that we'll have of many of people using paintings or other art as a means
0: of kind of teleportation or doors into different places. That's a great observation. I I had noticed that. It struck me as strange, but I didn't think about it too much. Uh, but again, this is actually also something that shows up quite a bit in the the Harry Potter universe. Well, our next scene is going to uh, introduce a little bit more of the the wider world of, of DC Comics here, where Gaiman's going to have to to do a little bit more of this this kind of balancing these elements from the DC universe w- without you know retconning them too much. And the, the next scene occurs in Arkham Asylum for the criminally insane, which is you know most famous from the the Batman comics, and we're here to meet the supervillain Dr. Destiny, whose real name is John D. And, uh, Brent, if you don't mind uh, continuing here in your role as DC Universe Explainer, uh, would you tell us a little bit about Dr. Destiny?
1: So, Dr. Destiny, um, has been a villain mainly to the Justice League of America but also other folks and he typically is depicted in ways very different than he is depicted here in this art style he often has de- depicted particularly in like the Justice League animated series is a very buff broad-shouldered supervillain with a mat- uh, skull for a face uh, or head, and just looks like he'd go toe for toe when punching Superman. But here we have the art that, that's making him look a lot more like he is Gollum. <laughs> He's a lot more twisted and terrified and scrawny, and he doesn't have a skull, but his skin is pulled tight enough that it, you you mainly get the same effect. But it's, it's a very different kind of creature, um, which is both horrifying and also makes you feel sad for him. Dr. Destiny, over time, has had many different powers, but at a certain point, he uh, has the ability to manipulate things from his dream stone. So the Justice League uh, were able to hypnotize him and manipulate his psyche to prevent him from dreaming, which kept him from using his stone for criminal purposes, but also caused him to both lose his mind and shrivel to a skeletal wreck of a man, um, as depicted in Arkham Asylum and here. Um, so that's a really, there's kind of this terrible dark underbelly to things that the Justice League does sometimes. <laughs> um, and here we see that side effect. So it's again bringing it into the continuity of the larger DC universe, but in more of a horror tinged way than just a, you know, bright, uh, capes and vibrant colors kind of way
0: right in this dream stone here, right? This is the element of Dr. Destiny that Gaiman is, is glomming onto here and is is going to do a little bit of, of retconning in order to incorporate that into the Sandman story. So uh, I think maybe we can just let the story proceed at this point. So we we meet John Dee's mother, and uh, it turns out that she's someone actually we've already met in the Sandman.
1: Yeah, she's Ethel, who um, had run away with the stone after running away with Sykes, uh, in the first uh, epi- issue, uh, Sykes and uh, Ethel had run away together. And then at a certain point, she left poor Sykes um, to his fate of uh, an exploding head, I believe, and had the stone. And then I guess she at some point had given that to her son, who is D, who became Dr. Destiny. And so she is at Arkham because she wants to visit her son. She tra- says she's traveled uh, 8,000 miles to see him today. Um, and she hadn't seen him in 10 years. Uh, we don't quite know what has kept her away all this time. And, uh, it's interesting that she decided to give him the stone versus worrying about, uh, what fate might befall her, but perhaps, I don't know why she (laughs) waited the, particularly the, if the 10 years is significant in some way. I was trying to think of if, um, the time for, uh, Alex Burgess to have passed away and therefore her not to worry about his retribution would have passed, but, uh, it seems like it's been longer than that so I don't know.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it's possible that she's somehow aware that dream has escaped and returned to the dreaming. I'm not sure how she would be aware of that uh, without the stone itself, but maybe she because she was a possessor of the stone at some point that she has uh, some kind of connection there. Uh, it's not explained on the page. We never we never find out. Uh, and you know, of course the the doctor who runs Arkham Asylum in this this incarnation of it uh, of course does not want to Take her to meet her son, but she threatens him with lawyers and, uh, and you know basically scolds him and looks very serious about it. So he he relents and and takes her into you know what's basically a dungeon where we meet John D, who is as you say looking uh, very bad. I mean he does really look like he hasn't slept in decades, which is basically what he says. Right? He says they took my dreams away from me, uh, which is which is all we're going to learn here.
1: And this depiction of Arkham Asylum, what little we get of it, is uh, matches oftentimes what is depicted in comics where, you know, we have the office where the doctor who is running the place has his uh, nice orderly degrees hanging on the wall. But then when it comes to actually going and seeing, uh, the inmates, uh, they are basically in a dungeon. Um, they might as well have been left there to rot, uh, forever. And there's no sign of particularly, uh, anything going on to help their mental care. Although he does, uh, ask Ethel to leave because her presence is, uh, disturbing, um, Dr. Uh, Destiny, but, uh. It's unclear whether uh, that is really the case versus uh, he's concerned about her contacting uh, humanitarian group or the ACLU for assistance.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, I think this doctor has a has a lot to be worried about. This is pretty pretty shameful care, though. I I, I think frequently this actually does come up in the Batman universe, right? That that maybe this is not actually a uh, a good facility, but then there are always some special rules for it. Oh, one thing that I found a little bit disappointing, actually, about uh, about this, as cool as this scene is, is that we just don't really ever understand exactly what it is that Ethel is is doing here if she really has just come only to see her son then she she literally gets like 10 seconds with him which uh, is is real disappointing if that's her her only her only goal here
1: I think that this two-page splash panel merely is laying groundwork for uh, things to come later in the series and connecting uh, characters we've met to characters we'll meet further, but in the context of the individual uh, issue, it, it doesn't mean much for the story. Um, although, the story being imperfect hosts, here we have the imperfect host, uh, one of them being... Um, uh, the faculty and staff of Arkham Asylum who are perhaps not doing a good job hosting the inmates, um, who are there after all because not only are they criminals but they also um, need major psychiatric assistance. And Arkham, of course, is um, originally was uh, a shout out to H.P. Lovecraft's Arkham, uh, although in DC universe it exists uh, either in or outside of Gotham, depending on the continuity.
0: Right, Lovecraft would be appalled to uh, to have his uh, his invention removed from his beloved New England. But alas, it is it is solidly in the mid Atlantic. Well, we in the next thing we re- return to the the dreaming now, where Cain and Abel are saying farewell to a, a slightly recovered dream and going back to their business about Abel's birthday. And we'll get some more on that later. But for now, we we watch Dream travel through the dreaming to get to his palace. And uh, Dream actually explains quite a bit to us about the dreaming about his realm here, which is very cool. Uh, It's infinite, though it is also bounded on every side. And it is surrounded by uh, an equally infinite region of dust and darkness, which is very cool. And we also learn here that uh, the way to the center of the dreaming is a slow spiral passing what he calls the old way stations on the frontiers of nightmare. I mean, this is just some great fantasy world building here.
1: Yeah, it it is some great fantasy world building as you said and then once he gets to the gates that are entryways then they're the gates of horn and ivory um and it's explained that he carved them himself when he was younger and that dreams pass through the gates and those that go through ivory are lies figments and deceptions um and the other admits only truth um, which i think is a great conception that there's two gates and uh
0: they both behave slightly differently. Right. And, and these are actually from classical literature, this idea of these gates of horn and ivory. And I, I want to geek out about this pretty hard because I am I am a historian of the late Roman Empire, in the early Middle Ages for my, my day job. So this is really in my wheelhouse. And um, I actually want to talk about the the literary sources, the historical sources uh, for the gates of horn and ivory, or at least one of them. Uh, we'll do this again about something else in a few pages as well. But the, the earliest text where we encounter the gates of horn and Ivory is The Odyssey, the very famous poem by Homer. And, and this is actually the description that Gaiman is using here. There's some some other different descriptions in, in other aspects of Greek and Latin literature. But um, I just actually want to read this passage from Book 19 of The Odyssey. Uh, and this this is from the, the Stanley Lombardo translation, which is the, the one that I, I use with my students because I really like it. Uh, and this is during the scene when Odysseus has returned home from the Trojan War after 20 years, and is trying to convince his wife, Penelope that he really is Odysseus. And Penelope says to him, "Stranger, you should know that dreams are hard to interpret and don't always come true. There are two gates for dreams to drift through, one made of horn and the other of ivory. Dreams that pass through the gate of ivory are deceptive dreams and will not come true. But when someone has a dream that has passed through the gate of polished horn, well, that dream will come true, right? So as you say, one is a gate for dreams that will come true, and one for dreams that won't. And the horn and ivory bit, right, the the names for these gates, this is actually a pun. The, the Greek words for horn and come to pass uh, sound similar, as do the Greek words for ivory and deceive. So basically, it's a dad joke <laughs> that has become this beautiful <laughs> image in Western art and literature for like 3,000 years. Uh, so that's fantastic. And Dream does explain here that this is precisely what's going on in this speculative world too. And uh, he further tells us that uh, the gate of ivory, right, the one with the false dreams is still guarded, but the gate of horn, the one for dreams that will come true is, is not guarded anymore. And so that's where dream goes to slip back into the center of his realm. Uh, And I was really interested in this idea here that, that dream is going to have to sneak into his own kingdom, that he's somehow going to have to evade his own guards.
1: Yeah, it's not clear with how underpowered Dream is, you know, what he is worried about um, as he returns to his home. And he, he does seem to exert himself when
0: opening the gate. Yeah, he does have to work really hard to kind of to pull the gate open, though it does look like it's a real heavy gate. And it is. And the art here is really very cool. But once Dream is through the gate, he sees his palace in ruins and the art here is pretty great, too.
1: Yeah, we see this wonderful, almost two uh page splash it it goes on to the second page and we've got a figure uh, who will quickly become one of everyone's favorite characters uh, outlined on the right hand side but then we have his uh, castle with uh, very ruined battlements um, and windows that uh, look like they've been cracked through weather or perhaps uh, people throwing bricks through them and a lot of it looks like an entire wing of the castle may have collapsed on the right-hand side. Then immediately we have Dream's face just looking completely downdrodden. And um, the art style in this issue is very much uh, – it's almost Looney Tunes-esque in the way that some of the pencils are drawn and kind of the over-emoting – uh, that is going on that uh, is not as typical for the art that we saw in the first issue and I'm not sure we're gonna see a lot more of this kind of art going forward
0: I also was struck by some of the cartoonishness of the art here but it is only the second issue so you know we see all of the creators really kind of playing with what this series is gonna is gonna be what it's gonna shape up to be it's always fun to, to go back and and start a series whether it's a you know comics or a book series or a TV show you know at the beginning and you uh, uh, and, and and see how different it is actually from the the, the things that ultimately the creators will settle on. You know, it's like watching a first season episode of the of Star Trek: The Next Generation, where Data's there using contractions. <laughs> You mentioned here Lucian, who's the, the librarian of Dreams, and he is a fan favorite. This is not the last time we're going to meet him. And he tells Dream the story of the palace's decay during his imprisonment, uh, mostly with an eye on what happened to the library, but that's what would matter to me most too, I think. So I empathize there. And he goes on to talk about what has happened with some of the anthropomorphic dreams. And I, I think we'll, we'll, uh, we'll turn to you here again, Brent, to tell us a little bit more about who some of these people are. But he tells us that the the Raven Woman has Decayed badly. The fashion thing has been keeping up with the dramatic changes in human fashions during the 20th century, or maybe causing them. And uh, many of the others uh, simply dispersed back into the stuff that they were made from.
1: And we'll touch on the Raven Woman later in the series, so I don't really necessarily want to talk about who that is. Uh, But this is the introduction of the idea that ravens do play an important role throughout. Ah, uh, the course of Sandman, Brute and Glob are mentioned. They'll be major players later on in in some of the later series. And the fashion thing, who was the Mad Mod Witch or Mad Madonna Witch, um, depending on the phase, uh, is actually another DC character, um, originating from 1968. She starred in the Tales of the Mad Mod Witch and later uh, appeared in some other horror stories. She had the mod lifestyle and was proud of her fishnet stockings and electric cauldron uh, that heats automatically – um, which is really the way to have an electric cauldron. If you're going to have one, you want one that heats up <laughs> real quick. Uh, you don't really want to wait for that to boil naturally. It's just very old fashioned. But here we have the suggestion that she's been updated a little bit to be not just the mad mod witch, but the mad Madonna witch, um, for the 1980s kind of appeal. But uh, the fact that she is a creature of the dreaming, then again, um, tying things from elsewhere in the DC universe into the continuity now being presented of how the Dreaming and Sandman relate to the rest of uh, the larger continuity.
0: Presumably, she also is is someone who has a commission, right? Because she's not created by by Neil Gaiman? Or do you do you think that she is someone who dream created here? Is that a big retcon? It's not clear to me because she's a palace servant, but it could be she has a commission and then left
1: because she doesn't seem like the kind of person who would care. Uh, also, um, how many decades do you have to wait before you can abandon your post? She might also be something of the dreams that has escaped. We later in the series will encounter someone who is from
0: the dreaming and very much a dream thing who has gone off on their own. Yeah, this is just one of the many teases about what the dreaming is and how this world works that we get in this issue, which is really just packed full of this, but but almost doesn't feel like it. I mean, there's some real deft, real expert world building that, that Gaiman is doing here. And, and actually, we're going to get this in the next scene, which is a very short scene with Cain and Abel. Abel finally opens his birthday present and it's a baby gargoyle. Uh, that's what I would like for my next birthday as well. Listeners, please uh, please send me any baby gargoyles you have or gargoyle eggs. And Abel wants to name the gargoyle Irving, but this incenses Abel because all gargoyle names have to begin with G. And Kane suggests Gaspacho, Gormagon, Gladstone, or Ganymede, though uh, I might have gone with Glad myself. I mean, it's a strong <laughs> name for a, a very handsome person, and uh, because... Cain is really mad. He murders Abel uh, again. And I think we get the impression here, right, that Cain murders Abel a lot, that they are kind of always uh, reenacting their first story over and over again, and that Abel will resurrect and Cain will murder him again, and that maybe not very much time even passes between these murders.
1: There's an exaggerated symmetry to what exists between Cain and Abel, where um, Cain is depicted as the far more capable, uh, physically fit um, individual, while Abel is depicted as kind of um, bumbling as well as... uh, physically out of shape and goldie is depicted as kind of a a goofy looking baby gargoyle uh while gregory is this you know massive dragon of a creature though gregory definitely uh differs from kane in that gregory appears to be the absence of malice and is all smiles um and we have not seen him
0: actually harm anyone at all yeah. And this, this baby gargoyle, I mean, he is absolutely adorable. He's just this cute little creature, basically, you know, a puppy or a kitten. And he has to see Abel get murdered here by Cain. And we actually get this uh, this one panel of of just the, the baby gargoyle sort of sitting on, I don't know, an, an ottoman or some, some other kind of foot cushion here, footstool. And there's blood flying around him. And he's got a real worried expression. And then the, the speech bubble here simply has him saying, arc with a question as he's wondering what is happening this is not a real nice welcome to the the world
1: so then on the next page we're treated to a a wonderful glimpse of what we think is that dream has restored his castle but then it pulls back to reveal that this is just him holding the uh, physical manifestation or illusory manifestation of what it did look like in his hand it's it still has fallen apart in and he has not managed to repair it, um, as he is still low on power. And then he discussed the fact that his power—he'd put too much of himself into his tools—and uh, they are gone. And that sets up a lot of where he needs to go the next several issues.
0: Yeah, we're really at the the, the climax of this of this issue here, and. You know, Lucian, because he's a very smart librarian, uh, he suggests that Dreamgo consult the three in one for knowledge. Uh, That is, if he's strong enough to summon them. And we get a a tease here of what's to come in the next several pages when when Lucian names this being, this three in one. Uh, he, He calls, he says, Earth. Vertandi and Skold, And these are figures from Norse mythology. Collectively, they're known as the Norn, and uh, they control the destinies of all beings in the universe, even the, the gods. And Dream has to use a ritual to summon the three-in-one. He has to actively shape the world, he says, which is very cool. And he uses a dream from a Cambodian farmer to get the requisite crossroads. He takes the necessary gallows from a Japanese movie buff who is sleeping after watching too many old Hammer horror films. I think we've all been there having these nightmares. Uh, And then the honey, the snakes, and the crescent moon are pretty easy to find. I guess these are just common elements in people's dreams. But the black she-lamb is more difficult. But eventually, Dream finds one in the dreams of a child in Adelaide, Australia, where there are indeed a a lot of sheep. And finally, he gets a bell tower that is ringing out the chimes for midnight. And these are all the elements he needs in order to summon the one who is three, the we who are they, the Hekatiai, as he calls them here. And uh, I think we should probably talk about their appearance on the page. uh, And then I'm going to nerd out about classical antiquity again. Mm -hmm. They, she,
1: it are warping in, and it's very reminiscent of the Wizard of Oz where, uh, there's like a tornado of gusting wind, uh, and a figure who is almost like a tornado themselves, but with a clear witch's hat at the top, um, which then becomes, uh, the image of, uh, it looks like three faces on the same head, uh, and then it looks separately as if it may be, uh, three distinct people, um, and the Hecate, uh, arrive then. They're given a whole page just to, splash into this and there's some imagery going on in the borders
0: where we have lots of skeletons and a goat's head yeah, there's a lot of witch imagery happening here and the the three figures these three women have a, a real each have a real distinct appearance, right? There's a a young, very beautiful woman, there's a kind of frumpy middle-aged woman here, uh and then there's also an old woman who really looks like the stereotypical kind of iconic image of a witch with the the long nose that's covered in warts.
1: And then once they've arrived we were we're given a a shot that's pulled back a little bit in which they clearly are standing in the same crossroads that a uh, dream had borrowed from that other dream. Um, and he is standing some distance from them, um, Uh, And they are in front of their cauldron that does not appear to be electrically heated. It's not plugged into anything, so it must be old school. (laughs) Yeah, these these women are definitely old school. We're going to find out. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, they appear almost as if they are the same person uh, below the torso, but with three distinct heads. It's very much uh, a hydra of a being.
0: Yeah right. So this this is where I'm gonna um, nerd out again before we get to what's actually happening in the the scene and all, all of these images that the artists are using here uh, are, are derived really from classical antiquity. Again, this this image, this idea of these these three women at different stages in their life, uh, these are are normally called the the virgin, the mother, and the crone. Sometimes we use maiden instead of virgin. Uh, this is actually a, a modern invention or at least a modern interpretation it's uh, it's uh, prominent in in neo pagan religions like wicca most famously but mostly it actually derives from the scholarly work of robert graves who's most famous for writing the novel i claudius and and gaiman gives them here the collective name uh, hecatei which is which, which is ancient greek but is also actually a modern invention it's a a play on the name uh, hecate which, who's the the greek goddess of cross roads and witchcraft, among other things. But those are the two elements that we see at play here in this story. And in art, she is often depicted as three women. And so Gaiman here has turned the name Hecate which is a singular, into a plural, right? He's given these women sort of a, a group name of their own. But I want to note that that Hecate is never depicted as this virgin mother and crone, but is in fact depicted as the same person just three times, right? That's how the ancient Greeks saw this figure. But the the image of three witches, of course, is also prominent in literature, perhaps most famously in Shakespeare's Macbeth. And that's basically what we're getting up here with the, the cauldron image. And uh, I think that's a real fantastic, uh, fantastic bit here. And of course, we're going to see game and do a lot with Shakespeare here throughout the the Sandman comics. And there's also a lot going on in this scene with names. I'm not going to go through them all, just the the highlights. Uh, First, Dream thinks of these women as Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos. Uh, collectively, these Greek goddesses make up the, the Moirai. Uh, in English, literally, that translates to the apportioners, but usually we just call them the fates in English. And these are the three goddesses who are weavers, weaving the tapestry of the universe at their loom, and, and each person is included in that tapestry. And uh, when your story is over, they cut your thread. This is a, an image that pervades our 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 own, our own culture. We see it in, in movies, it's it's mentioned in books, and we see it in paintings all the time. And one of their earliest appearances is in the, the Greek poem, The Theogony, which is basically just means the birth of the gods. And this is by the poet Hesiod, who's uh, more or less a, a, a contemporary of Homer. Uh, and he writes about them. And this is also from the, the Stanley Lombardo translation. Uh, he writes, the merciless avenging fates, Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos, who give mortals at birth good and evil to have, and they prosecute the transgressions of mortals and gods. These goddesses never let up their dread anger until the sinner has paid a severe penalty. So here in this poem, they're not just the writers of our destinies, but they are the deities who punish people who sin. Uh, And that might come up uh, later in The Sandman, but the the women here actually they correct Dream when he refers to them as the the Moirai, and they say that they are in fact, Tisiphone, Electo, and. Megaira, uh, that is to say, they are not the Fates; they are the three Furies, and the Furies are also goddesses from Greek mythology. Yeah, there are a lot of these goddesses in Greek mythology, and uh, and the, the Furies are pretty much what it says on the box, right? Most scholars agree that these figures are actually some of the the oldest deities in ancient Greek religion, and later they developed the special purview of punishing moral crimes, murders, uh, and uh, and oath breaking, and. They appear most famously in Athenian tragedy, especially the um, the trilogy of, of plays The Orestia by Aeschylus, but also a play uh, called uh, Orestes by Euripides. And these are stories uh, in which the Furies hunt down Orestes for killing his mother. Uh, and they are really scary women with mutilated faces. And the Furies, uh, and really in Greek, I should say that they're called the Erinyes. The uh, they're also sometimes called the Eumenides, which translates uh in English to The Kindly Ones. And this is, you know, it's it's a joke because they are not kind at all. But it is a, a term that is meant to placate them, to make them feel good about themselves. And Gaiman is going to use this later, right? Because The, the Kindly Ones is, in fact, the name of the ninth volume of Sandman, and, and we'll get there eventually. And here dream is being pretty smooth with these women whoever they are and he, he says that he doesn't think of them as the three fates uh, or the three Furies but rather as the three graces and the graces are yet another group of three goddesses in Greek mythology who are the source of beauty human creativity and fertility and Hesiod describes them as the three rose-cheeked graces the light from their eyes melts limbs with desire uh, it sounds pretty nice I think if I had to pick one of these groups of three women to meet, it would definitely be the graces. But we can see here that Dream is trying to butter them up by saying, well, you're not, you know, Freddy Krueger faced nightmare women. You're super beautiful and awesome. We also get some other names here that I, I won't dwell on, uh, but I do want to mention. There are Mordred and Morgaine from medieval Arthurian romance, Morrigan from Celtic mythology. There's also a reference here to the Motown girl group, the Supremes, but you know, that's just Gaiman making a rock history joke, won't be the last time. And I think what really matters here is that Gaiman is saying that all of these different uh, women, different groups of women from various mythologies are the same figures, just with different names. And this sort of thing is called syncretism, which uh, literally means same belief. And in the ancient world, syncretism was a, a big deal. It was kind of the the, the order of the day. And it, and it meant that we all understand that Zeus, Jupiter, and Amon are all the same god, but the different cultures have different names for them, right? But they're all the same dude. And this was just how people in the ancient world got along. But Gaiman is doing a, a sort of modern variation of this as well, uh, one that the ancients actually would not have liked very much, right? He's saying that any group of three goddesses is basically the same power, I guess, in the universe, uh, even within a single religious system. So the ancients here, they would have totally disagreed, right? For them, the Fates and the Furies were very different figures and were totally separate people. But this type of conflation of them, this is actually a pretty common idea of neo-paganism in the 20th century. And, you know, it's it's really fun, and it's an idea. uh that we're going to see in Gaiman's work a lot as we go on.
1: Yeah, and it's a very nice excuse then later for him to embrace certain mythological figures and bring them into the continuity of the Sandman comics, Uh, Or in this case, actually, a number of these three-in-one deities had been uh, present in name in DC continuity. Even the three witches um, had their own run for a little while in some of the horror story comics as well. But also the fates uh, with separate names were in there as well. Um, and it's interesting, as you mentioned, there's the one uh, perhaps joke cast off uh, that Neil Gaiman, who did a lot of his original work in kind of music criticism, uh, mentioned the Supremes. But the Supremes also being a nickname given to the Supreme Court in the United States, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but as kind of judges – and the, the the role that they have there, not just as prognosticators, but also those who are handing down judgments uh, and looking to perhaps punish sinners, that being something that is perhaps alluded to by mentioning the Supremes.
0: Yeah, I really like this uh, this kind of just throwaway joke here about the Supremes. I guess I think the idea is right that these these three goddesses actually, uh, for you know, five or six years, had a really awesome musical career uh, as a Motown girl group. And uh, you know, they were the the Supremes were pretty good. I would believe that they were actually divine figures, I suppose, or magical figures at least. Well, before we finally get back to the plot, I do just want to plug actually another podcast that I do on Clay Temple Media. Uh, It's called Agnes, the Late Antique, Medieval, and Byzantine Podcast, and uh, this is where I. interview other scholars about their work on the the periods that we've just been talking about, the periods from which these figures are all derived. And uh, the most recent episode I've published is actually about Arthurian literature and fairy stories. But I've also recently interviewed scholars who work on Chaucer, uh, late medieval pacifism, late antique Christian heresy is always a very cool topic, and uh, the sixth century Gothic War. So uh, if any of that sounds interesting to you, uh, please check out Agnes.
1: But one of the other things I enjoy about Agnes is it's very interesting to hear scholars talk about how they do their research on a particular issue um and the active steps that they take to gather primary sources um, and work through the material – um, as well as re- considering secondary material of scholars who have come before to build upon uh, the greater knowledge that we have. Um, I think it's interesting, even
0: if you're not interested in the specific topics, but who is not interested in Arthurian legend? Yeah, certainly that's something that's of interest to anyone reading the Sandman. Well, I think we can we can get back to the the plot here after this this long uh, long nerdy digression on my part. And of course, Dream is talking to these goddesses because he wants to know what happened to his stuff. Right, that's what's going on here, and he is allowed to ask each of them one question. Uh, he's not very good at thinking about how to ask these questions, and he only gets you know half answers. Uh, but this is a fun device to drive the plot of the next several issues, as he's going to have to kind of solve the mysteries that they present to him here and, you know, there are the three objects that he's looking for. The, the pouch we learn here was last purchased by John Constantine from the Hellblazer comics. The helmet was traded to a demon by Sykes. We saw that in the, the first issue. But of course, we don't know which demon at this point. This is part of the game they're playing with Dream. And the ruby is now in the possession of the Justice League of America after they took it from a supervillain. We, of course, here know exactly what they're talking about because we've already seen it, right? This is the connection with Dr. Destiny, but it's pretty awesome here that we see Green Lantern and Batman on the page. I had kind of forgotten that.
1: Yeah, this is a great bit in which uh, we have uh, Green Lantern. This is the Hal Jordan Green Lantern holding Dr. Destiny in his uh, chains that he's produced from his ring. Um, and Batman is holding the dream stone. Um, and also in a clever bit of bit of art, uh, Batman is also grasping around the edge of the border of the panel. So it's just uh it's great uh, and and the Batman here cuz now we've had multiple Batman so uh it's it's Bruce Wayne Batman, but uh, in his old uh, style, uh, very gray um, with blue, uh, the Justice League of America, very recognizable to DC comic fans of the time. And uh, John Constantine, uh, very familiar to DC comic fans of the time who would be more interested in uh, the horror comics and such, um, having his own series um, after having been originated uh, by Alan Moore in Swamp Thing. And this uh, sets up where we're going to be going for the next several issues, but as as you said, Glenn, um, Dream is not very good at asking his questions, both in the way he's phrasing his questions, but also he keeps on trying to ask second questions, even though he's only permitted one question per. And I think that they're being very kind in uh, r- reminding him that he can't ask a second question versus counting the second question. I feel like this is uh, – the dungeon master playing very friendly with the players, as opposed to uh, what normally would occur, which is oh, You asked your second question. Now you only have one left. You're on your own to figure out the ruby because you wasted two on the pouch.
0: Yeah, I think they're taking some pity on him because he's he's in pretty bad shape, and and maybe they are here really being the kindly ones, or or rather being the three graces. They are they are being quite uh, quite charitable, uh, and in fact, uh, charities, charities is actually what they are called in in Greek.
1: And it could be because he took the time to prepare all of the offerings for the ritual, including getting the clock tower, echo and clang, um, is the reason why uh, they are trying to provide him the greatest leniency they can in this case, uh, although in the future they will not grant him nearly as much leniency. Um, And they may also know, though, in the future where things go. And so there's no reason at this point for them to not um, put him on the path that he is already perhaps destined to go on.
0: Right. They want things to to work out the way that they know they're going to work out. And of course, we will we will see them again. Well, after receiving all of this information, right, Dream Dream knows he's going to go after all of these objects, but he has to consider you know, which one he should go get first. And he he decides that he's not strong enough to go to hell and confront a demon uh, and and he also needs to look into this whole superhero, supervillain business that's, you know, a new thing in the world that's happened while he was imprisoned. So he decides to to go off to see John Constantine first because he's just a regular person. And uh, and that's going to bring us into issue number three, though we're we're not quite done with this issue yet.
1: Yeah, and uh, considering John Constantine just a normal person um, is a very funny mistake. But I think it's interesting to see that his uh, dream is a very serene face that is um, – presented on the panels as uh, the Hecatea are leaving, uh, immediately falls to the downcast, sullen, uh, weakened face that he mentions exhaustion biting at his soul. And so he clearly is putting on a front while they're there during the ritual. But uh, now, as soon as they leave, he can go back to where he was before, which is not hiding the fact that he is uh, very underpowered at this point.
0: Presumably doing this ritual took, some of his power some of the the power that he's just recovered from you know consuming things that he's created so it's i think it's pretty urgent for him that he goes and finds these three objects and of course right being underpowered these are going to be real uh, real adventures, right? These are not going to be just easy things that he can co- go do. So it sets up you know, the drama of what you know, is going to be the next three issues.
1: And we briefly cut in the midst of this to Abel, who had him being dead for a couple hours, uh, is starting to feel better, better than dead, uh, being a difficult state to come back from. Uh, and it, it, it then shows him trying to pull himself back together. Um, and we are treated to a return to Abel sitting on Uh, the steps with Irving, who he decided to secretly call Goldie, uh, sitting on his house for the last page of things. And uh, it's kind of a very melancholy, dark ending to the story. And I'm not quite sure what to make of it, particularly with the outline, it looks of Dream slightly uh, for overshadowing the panel on the, uh, the top of the page.
0: Right, because we do get an image of Dream uh, returning to the the gate of Horn and leaving the center of the dreaming, so presumably he's on his way back out. So he's passing these old way stations again, uh, which is which is sort of a, an interesting art choice because it doesn't really matter. We could have actually just had this scene of of Abel without without dream, uh, but it is actually pretty pretty cool looking, and this. Uh, you know this this last scene here. I mean, this is an interesting way to close out this issue. Abel tells Goldie a story of two brothers who love each other very much and who definitely never ever murder each other. And you know, we we see here right that Abel really wants Cain to love him. Cain, of course, is never going to do that. And we see his black and bloodied eye from where Cain last murdered him. And blood is dripping from the eye. And he insists to, to his gargoyle, Goldie, that he's not crying uh, because it, it's just blood that's, that's dripping from his eye. And, you know, the last line then of this issue is, it's only blood, little brother only blood. And this notion of blood as uh, both a metaphor for family, but also the, the residue of a horrible crime is going to be a, a real theme or a real motif of the whole series. So I think that's a real nice way to end here, the, the second issue.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um And it, it clearly, though, is keeping it kind of in the dark horror comics theme of things. But the notion of blood, both of Reflecting the wounding that is going on, but also mentioning the idea of familial bond um, is a theme that we'll see play out throughout the series.
0: Well, that does bring us to the close of this issue, but we still have a few more things that we want to talk about as we do in every episode and with every issue. Uh, let's, let's talk first about the, the cover art, the Dave McKean cover art. There's a lot of things going
1: on in this cover, but it looks to me like we have the Hecatea, the three in one, um, as the dominant thing, as well as an owl, um, on the cover. But Glenn, what do you make of, uh, the center image of the cover.
0: This is definitely the the three in one here, because we do get uh, a young woman, a middle aged woman, and then an old witch here. Uh, so the, you know, the, the maiden, the mother and the crone. And it looks to me now that I'm looking at it a little bit more
1: um, that the owl almost is appearing as part of the hat.
0: That the crone is wearing yeah, that's right, and owls, of course, are famous in in Western literature and Western art as as being associated with uh, witchcraft uh, and they also have a owl and owls also have a, a prominent role in a you know a number of of mythologies, including Greek mythology and and the the Celtic mythology, both of which we've seen invoked here uh, and to me, I think what's really important about having these figures, the three and one on the cover here, right is that it suggests that that's the most important. Element of this story, uh, even though that might not seem to be the case, kind of on, on a first read, uh, I think on on a reread that that does seem to be true that there is so much of the series being set up in that conversation. So I think this is a uh, an excellent choice, and and you know does suggest to us that that uh, Gaiman had an idea of what he was going to do with this whole series, what the whole over. What the whole arc was going to be, even before they've gotten started, which is great. Well, let's let's talk about the the title now. Imperfect host. You've already pointed out uh, one place where we see an imperfect host, and that's Arkham Asylum. Uh, where else do you, do we see that, and what are we meant to take from this? Well, we've got
1: Cain and Abel as the framing devices, who are imperfect hosts um, in some ways to dream, particularly Cain, not remembering uh, or lying that about the existence of the Commission, uh, but also. Abel is in Cain's house when we start the story, so it's also Abel being uh, Cain being an imperfect host to his brother Abel. I'm wondering, Glenn, do you think the imperfect host also uh, reflects the relationship
0: between uh, Dream and his interaction with the uh, Hecatea? I guess in this sense, right, Dream has invited them. Uh, maybe he's summoned them, I guess, is really what he's done. But he's hosting them. And, you know, I think we both, we just talked about how we have the sense that he actually has he's provided all of the, these things for them, in fact, including some things that are indicated as being uh, kind of... Extra. right? even says that they would come for what he's already uh, assembled, but he needs. To, he wants to get a a few more items first. So, you know, in this case, Dream might actually be being a good host, uh, not an imperfect one. And being a good host is a super important part of almost every pre-modern culture uh, that that's ev- that ever existed on Earth, uh, because you know people didn't have service plazas on the highways and 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 uh, anonymous hotels, right? So where you had to take care of tr- people who are traveling and even strangers who come and visit. And this is a real sacred. Bond, the guest-host relationship. And of course, you'll see this in all sorts of of, of our, our fantasy literature as well. And so, I think this title here and this emphasis on being a good host it also suggests to us that these these ancient rules are going to be an important part of the Sandman story. And, and of course, they will. All right. Well, I think the time has come to to discuss our favorite panels. And uh, uh, Brent, do you want to have first crack at that? Tell us what your favorite panel is. It's on page 14 in the upper left-hand corner. It's the page after
1: we've been introduced to Lucien, but it's Lucien with Dream. It's just them in silhouette. Uh, Lucien, I believe, is standing a little closer to us, uh, but he may not be, but he appears very straight and tall, and you can see the tails of his coat, and you can see the hoe, um, in his hand, which we'd seen the panel, uh, the, the page before. But it's more evident here that he's been trying his best to do what he can, but, uh, there's so much just debris he is dealing with at this point that the hoe strikes me as him being so dutiful in, even in the um, absence of dream. He is continuing to carry his functions. Um, and he is standing completely upright. And you get the opinion, you get the sense that he is not just standing upright because dream is now here. He's not doing it out of some kind of duty to dream being present, but just that Lucian is an upright individual. While we get, uh, dream looking a little mopey. Um, a little sad, um, and, uh, uh, kind of shorter and underpowered. And I think some of that has to do with the state the dream currently is in. But also, I think a lot of it has to do with the character of these two individuals, which we'll see more going forward And that, uh, Lucian is pretty steadfast in taking a fairly moral and ethical, uh, position, um, uh, as well as, uh, ob- his obligatory duty to his role here in the dream. But you also see the silhouette of the ruined castle, but it doesn't seem quite as ruined here as it does elsewhere um,
0: in the backdrop. And I like the way that you extrapolate an awful lot of character from just the way that these two figures are, are standing. I think you described Dream as being a little bit, uh, I don't know, mopey here. He, his head is bent and his hands are kind of clasped in front of him. But we definitely see that in this picture, the servant is uh, stronger, more striking than the, the master, than the king here. And the words on the page here, this is Lucian saying, it's been a strange century for all of us, my Lord, right? He is welcoming Dream back to his realm after an absence of 70 years. And because we were talking about uh, Greek literature earlier, and I even read from the Odyssey, this actually puts me in mind of thinking about the Odyssey, which is also a tale about someone returning home, a king returning to his kingdom after an absence of decades, and The first thing that Odysseus does when he gets back to his kingdom, the island of Ithaca, is not actually go straight to his wife, uh, who in the passage that I read earlier, we see is kind of refusing or reluctant to uh, admit that he really is her husband. But he goes to his servants uh, and gets and and reveals his identity to them, and they are so happy to have him back because he's now going to put right all the things that have gone wrong in his absence. But but Odysseus is uh, sort of weakened when he gets there, and he needs their help. And we're seeing basically the exact same relationship here, where Dream is reliant on the the goodwill of his. Of his servants, right, and and I think if we saw Cain and Abel as being imperfect hosts, uh, Lucian here is being the perfect servant, the perfect librarian, and it's it's really wonderful. What was your favorite panel, Glenn? I'm going go to go to page eleven here. I think probably you'll have have seen this coming. Uh, I loved the gate of horn. It's uh, it's an epic pose with dreams hair blowing in the wind as he stares at. Uh, really, what amounts to a fantasy landscape. I mean, this is kind of an iconic thing. You know, all of our our action movie posters look like this. But I, I really love the intricacy of the gate of horn itself. It, it has a, a dragon skull in the door, and then there are a pair of horned and uh, winged dragons that are perching over the gate. And these actually look a lot like the dragons who guarded over the gate to Roderick Burgess's mansion uh, that we had in the first issue. And I like the subtle suggestion here that Roderick Burgess and Dream might actually be more similar than they are different, that they are both arrogant rulers of their domain uh i I really like that and it's just beautiful
1: and the two dragons that are hovering overhead look a lot like gregory does so uh we don't know if they're technically dragons or gargoyles either way they're they're great figures to have there um and in the future we'll actually get a little bit more from uh the creatures either on the gate or i can't remember if it might be on the castle but um they become characters into themselves in the future so
0: it's something to look forward to well, now that we've gone through the cover art, the title, and our favorite panels and are looking ahead to, uh, to future issues, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman.
1: And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects, including Glenn's history podcast, Agnes, at claytemplemedia.com.
0: Well, head on over to the Clay Temple Forums and let us know what you thought of Imperfect Hosts. Uh, share your memories of reading this uh, for the first time, or if this is your first time, uh, let us know how you're enjoying the series so far. And I don't know about you, Glenn, but I'm excited to see John Constantine,
1: and we'll get a lot of him next time on issue three, Dream a Little Dream
0: of Me. Until then, pleasant dreams.